Well, you did a great job with uh, the new hymn today. I don't know if, if you noticed the interesting title it had, Lo, There Is No God in Heaven. Now you can say you sang that at church, right? I don't know why they titled it that. I think just Psalm 53 would have been a better title for that one. But it was a nice way to sing the text of Psalm 53, which was written to be a song. It was written to the chief musician. It was written by David to be sung in worship. Because part of our worship to the God who saves includes an acknowledgement that we are sinful. We're foolish to live as if there is no God. And what David does in Psalm 53 is he openly acknowledges the evil in our hearts and he looks to God and he sees God's perspective throughout the psalm. In the first stanza, one through three, he he looks at the fool who says there is no God, and then he turns to God's perspective. God looks down from heaven. And then in verses four and five, he looks to the one who encamps against God's people, meaning he's opposed to what God is trying to do. But he looks again to what God is going to do in judgment. And then finally in verse six, With the people of Israel, he draws our attention to God's future plan to bring salvation through the Messiah. So, in the midst of all this evil, all this difficulty that David is facing, he looks to God. The question is, what evil was David facing? Well, the the heading of the psalm says, To the chief musician set to Mahalath, a contemplation of David. So we know David wrote it, but we don't know exactly what he was facing. He doesn't mention it specifically here. In fact, we don't even know for sure what the Hebrew word Mahalath means. Some think it's a flute. Some think it's a specific genre of lament. Uh, We don't know exactly what David means by that. The only clue we have is where this psalm lands. The reason that's a clue is because it's the second time this psalm has appeared. Psalm 14 is almost an exact copy of Psalm 53, or maybe vice versa. It really doesn't matter. David wrote them both, and so he found occasion to sing these words again, is basically the bottom line. And the main difference is in the middle of the psalm, verses 4 and 5. And so there is a slight change. Something had gone on in David's life where he sings this song again, but he changes it specifically. It also lands between Psalm 52 and 54. Big surprise, right? This is just really deep stuff we're talking about today. 53 is indeed between 52 and 54, but there's more significance to that. As we learned last week, Psalm 52 referenced uh, a certain time in David's life when Doeg the Edomite had committed this great act of evil. We read about that in the book of 1 Samuel, and we're told about Doeg in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Then Psalm 54, which we haven't gotten to yet, here's a bit of a reveal for next week, Lord willing. Psalm 54 talks about the Ziphites, again, it's a time in David's life, who, come, who are mentioned in 1 Samuel 26. So now we have a little bit of a gap here, 1 Samuel 22 and 26. So the question is, is there something that happened in between those two chapters that might be referred to here? Well, in 1 Samuel 25, yes, 25 is between 22 and 26. Again, deep stuff today. In 1 Samuel 25, we have an encounter with a man named Nabal. And David goes to Nabal for help. And Nabal just kind of turns him away, kicks him to the curb, and and is uh, even willing to side with Saul instead of David. 
And in that passage, we're told that Nabal acted like a fool. In fact, it's his wife, Abigail, who says that in 1 Samuel 25, verse 25. She actually makes a play on words about his name because, big surprise, the word Nabal in Hebrew is literally fool. So cross that off your list of baby names uh, for your future children. Uh, Nabal's not a good one to go with. I don't know who Nabal's mother was, but anyway, uh, he was named Fool. And Abigail comes to David and, and brings these gifts and says to David, Oh, please have mercy on us, even though my husband played the part of his name and was a fool. Take my gift and have mercy on us. And so David doesn't attack Nabal and his household. Really interesting story. So some surmise that Psalm 53 is about Nabal, the fool. And that's why it opens, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Either way, it's a period of time in David's life when he's experiencing the opposition, the evil of others toward him, right? Everyone's against him. Saul is attacking him. And those who are showing loyalty to Saul, like Doeg and like the Ziphites we'll see in Psalm 54, are all kind of against David. And David knows that the Lord has anointed him for the throne, but he's continuing to face this evil. And I think he's overwhelmed by it, and that's where this psalm comes. This expression of David to God with the help of God's Spirit, there's even some things here that David couldn't know on his own. God reveals these things to David, and he expresses the pain of evil, and he seeks to trust in God. So friends, when we are overwhelmed by evil, trust God's plan. And David helps us to sort of see things from God's perspective in Psalm 53. Again, we we don't have to think very hard to relate to David here. You may or may not have, uh, you know, Doeg the Edomite opposing you specifically or anything like that in your life, but we don't have to think very hard to see the evil in the world around us. Sometimes even evil directed at us ourselves, but as evil always is, directly opposed to God. We see that all over the place. We don't have to think hard. Acts of violence, acts of murder and hate, acts of immorality, turn the world upside down, acts that deny the truth of God's Word and what He has said is right and wrong. We're surrounded by these things. So we don't have to think hard to recognize that even in life we can be overwhelmed by evil. And in those times we must look to God. Let's consider how we do that today. First thing that helps us as we seek to trust God is to remember that He sees the evil in every heart. He sees. He sees. This is what David focuses on in verses 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And again, this is not a fool, meaning they just, they just uh, you know, aren't smart enough to figure things out. No, it's living as if God doesn't exist. It's in their heart, choosing to deny God's existence. So again, it's not that you know, there isn't enough evidence. It's not that intellectually they couldn't figure it out. This is not the idea. It's the one who says from his heart, eh, there's no God. I can do what I want. David says that's a fool to operate that way, as if there's no creator to this world, as if I'm not accountable to God. 
So if we, if we say there's no God, then we conclude, oh, I can live how I want. There's no morality. I, I can't commit any sin. What's sin? If there's no God, there's no sin. I, I can get rid of the truth. If there's no God, there's no truth. I can't be wrong. My view of things is right, so just try to prove me wrong if there's no God. And it leaves me with no accountability. I have no consequences for my actions. I can kind of seek after anything I want, and whatever happens, happens, and that's the way it is. There's no accountability. So this is foolish thinking, is what David is saying. And it comes from the heart. The conclusion that there is no God is not the logical conclusion of the evidence around us. It's the heart's conclusion of the evidence around us. A heart that says, I don't want to have accountability. I don't want to live by truth outside of myself. I don't want to have God's consequences for my sin. Many look at what's happened in their life. So I don't want what God has allowed. So done with God, I'm going to live as if he doesn't exist. It's foolishness. David goes on to describe this kind of thinking at the end, the rest of verse 1. They're corrupt. Those who think this way are corrupt. They've done abominable iniquity. So not only is my heart off in denying God, not only is my thinking corrupted, but now it leads to committing of abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. It's the conclusion. If we pretend God doesn't exist, our moral compass cannot help but go astray. And we will commit acts of evil. This is the foundation of all rebellion, all evil. It is a denial of the authority of God. It leads to all sorts of corruption. In the end... There's none who does good. If we deny God, even our good deeds are done for our own glory. Now think about it. An act in and of itself could be maybe considered good, right? A child shares with another child. Good. But if I'm living as if God doesn't exist, if I have denied the very existence of God, then the very foundation of every action falls out from under me. I mean, I cannot do things for God's glory, can I? Now, God has grace, and, and, and so we see, by God's grace, we see trail evidences, trace evidences of His kindness and goodness, even, even in creation around us. We do. But if a human heart has chosen to say, eh, I'm going to live as if there is no God, then at my very core, everything I'm doing is for me, isn't it? It's not for God. And therefore, I cannot do good because it was all for me. I've denied God. I'm opposed to God. I cannot ultimately do good. And this is the conclusion of the matter in David's mind. There's none who does good. If we say there is no God, if we live as if there is no God, then I am not capable, ultimately, of pleasing God, am I? I can't glorify God if I'm saying at the same time He doesn't exist. So this is what happens in our hearts. Overwhelmed by this evil... In verse 2, David turns to God's perspective. And here's where David somehow, by God's grace, has been given a glimpse into uh, God in heaven. God looks down from heaven upon the children of man. The word children emphasizing that we are His creatures. Every one of us. God rules from heaven. And He looks down. He sees everything that's done. 
among the children of men. The question is, are there any who understand, who seek God? That word understand is the word for wisdom, the very opposite of the fool who says there is no God. It's also the word used in the heading of this psalm that says a contemplation of David. It's related to wisdom, this this statement of wisdom from David. And so here, here's what God is looking for. Does anyone have wisdom? Does anyone seek God? That's the wise way. Not to deny that He exists. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, God is looking from heaven. Is there anyone who gets it? Is there anyone who seeks after Him? And the conclusion in verse 3 is that every one of them has turned aside. Together, all of them have become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, this is a difficult conclusion. The way David speaks here now, we're, we're not just talking about the fool back in verse 1. The words are incredibly clear. Everyone has turned aside, has turned astray. This is the view of God from heaven. There is none like Him. Everyone has gone astray. This is the perspective of God. He sees the evil in every heart. And I want you to notice that about what he sees in verses 2 and 3. It's not just their actions. He sees in the very heart of man to motive and to desires. None of them has wisdom. None of them seeks after God from their hearts. God knows this. He sees this. He He sees every act of evil. Whether or not we acknowledge Him, God is there, and He's watching, and He sees it all. He sees the evil in every heart. We live in the age of doorbell cameras. Maybe you have one, maybe you don't, but it's pretty common anymore to, as you walk through a neighborhood, see them from house to house, and uh, all these video cameras going, and some people even add cameras around their home to their you know, security uh, network in their own home. But with this addition of so many cameras, it's interesting the things that are caught on camera. People that didn't know someone was watching. Porch pirates, for instance, that's the term for people who come and uh, steal packages. I watched one surprise video of a uh, young man who walked up to a house and picked up the packages and started kind of leafing through them. Ah, Let's see here, which one do I want? And his head pops up and he sees the doorbell cam there and he kind of pauses and freezes for a second and puts the packages down. And then realizing that the camera's watching, he waves. (laughs) He waves at the camera. And then he says to the camera, I was just kidding. I just wanted to see if you were home. And he knocks on the door. (laughs) Nobody's home. And so, so he leaves, right? Caught, red-handed, literally. There are even cameras in our homes that catch interesting things. One little girl was working on her math homework, and the camera caught this interaction as she's sitting at the table doing her subtraction. Hey, Siri, what's 10 minus 8? The answer is 2. Hey, Siri, what's 6 minus 4? The answer is two, right? So she kept asking Siri for the answer. She was just going through her math homework faster than you can imagine. Sorry, kids who've been doing that. I just stole that uh, opportunity from you. So don't ask Siri for help on your homework. 
In the age of cameras, there are a lot of things that are seen, but there are still many things that go unseen in human eyes. But God sees it all. Now, at first, that's comforting to us, right? We think about that and we realize, well, that, that, that word, that, that person spoke against me, that, and they gossiped about me, they slandered me. Oh, God knows that. God saw it. He saw it happen. Or that act of evil that you witnessed, that nobody else sees or, or fully understands, it's encouraging because God saw it. And not only did He see the act itself, He knows exactly what was going on in the heart of that person. And so at first, this is comforting. As we think about the shooter, or the suicide bomber, or the rapist, or the murderer, or the terrorist, God sees it all, and He knows exactly what was going on inside. We continue to think about this, and this encourages us in other categories of life as well. We study this psalm at sort of the opening Sunday of Pride Month. It's a good time for us all to read Romans chapter 1 through 3, to remember God's view of things in a culture that twists the truth and pursues its own desires, worships the creature rather than the Creator. But as we read Romans 1 through 3, and, and, and remember there's a God who sees every act of evil, we also need to remember that not only does He see what's in other people's hearts and and He knows what they've done, even if it was against me, He sees it, but that God also sees my heart. This is what happens in Romans 1 through 3. In Romans 1, God condemns those who who are worshiping creature rather than creator and have turned God's morality upside down. But then in chapters 2 and 3, he talks to the reader and he says, Oh, you who judge them, do you not understand that you are also accountable to God? And in chapter 3, he quotes Psalm 14, 53, whichever one, these very words, There is none who does good. There is none who is righteous. So the gaze of God upon every act of evil in our hearts is encouraging. He saw what happened to me, but He also saw my heart. And we need to remember that in the same sentence as well. All, you see, have sinned. All have gone astray. I have. You have. And human righteousness, even if I've tried to do enough good things to outweigh the bad, human righteousness is never enough to satisfy God. We all have evil in our hearts and God sees it all. Every thought that's zipped past my mind, even if I didn't say it out loud, God knows it altogether. So, lest we think we're better, we remember the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, which remind us of the all-knowing gaze of God in our response as believers. There, the author of Hebrews says this, "...there is no creature hidden from His sight." All things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. He sees everything. So we don't turn to our righteousness. We already messed that up with our acts of evil. 
and hatred and so forth. Where then do we turn? Verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession is this, that I am a sinner. I had no way of being righteous before a holy God and that God sent His Son Jesus to die for my sins and that by trusting in Him as Savior, I am given God's righteousness. That's my confession. So when I stand before God and give account, there's nothing on my account that I can offer to God to say, oh, here's enough, God. This will do it. No, I have gone astray. I'm evil and I'm wicked. But Jesus died for my sins. And then when I stand before God, I hold fast to that confession. And I say to God, oh, I have no no right to stand before you. But Jesus paid for my sins and I have his righteousness, God. That's the only reason I can be here. That's our confession. So the all-knowing gaze of God ought to rightfully humble us to look to Jesus and nothing to claim before God but that His Son gave His life for me. So friend, what are you ashamed of today? Many try to escape shame in their lives through affirmation and self-justification. This thing that I've done, this way that I am, this thing I desire, if I just affirm it, if I just find people who will affirm it for me, if I can just find some way in my head to say that it's okay, like, like living as if God doesn't exist, then, then that's all right. Then I've, then I've dealt with my shame. I've gotten rid of my guilt, right? Wrong. Whether or not... I believe God exists, He exists. And He's looking down from heaven, and He's seen every thought and desire of your heart. And He offers you a way to deal with that shame. And it's not to self-justify. It's not to just find people who affirm you. No, friend, the rich truth of the Scriptures is that the way we get rid of our sin is first by acknowledging it before a holy God and then accepting His offer of salvation. Through Jesus Christ. Think of it every time you've had that thought of envy, wanted something that somebody else had but God had not provided for you, or lusting after something that was not yours, or coveting the thing that somebody else had, or that angry thought you had, even if you didn't do anything with it, but in your heart you were angry towards that person, or that time you just slightly adjusted the truth, right? Well, that's not exactly what happened. It was just a little white lie. It's a lie. All of that is evil. Even in our thoughts, we turn from God, but God offers a solution. Notice What happens next in verses 4 and 5, we still go further down the rabbit hole here. As in verses 4 and 5, we encounter the one who has acted upon the evil in his heart. And David asks an interesting question. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? There's that word for, for wisdom, understanding again. Do they not get it? He's surprised. Verse 4, what are these workers of iniquity doing? Well, in this case, he's saying they eat up my people like they eat bread. They're devouring the people of God. And again, we don't know exactly what David's talking about. If it's, if it's Nabal, it's simply that idea that Nabal would not, would not bring them into safety. He, he shut them out, the danger of Saul. 
And so therefore, was, was a part of devouring God's people. The point is that those who are against God and God's people are these workers of iniquity. It's the very foundation of what evil is. And so what we see in verses 4 and 5 is that it's a part of God's plan that He destroys sinners who do not repent. This is what God has promised He will do. That's, again, not a popular, you know, happy-go-lucky message. This is what the Bible says. So, verse 4, here are these workers of iniquity who continue to deny God, who continue to oppose God. What does it say at the end of verse 4? They do not call upon Him. They had opportunity for repentance. They had opportunity to call out to God, but they rejected God. So now, we've narrowed the focus specifically to unbelievers, those who have resisted the call of God to repentance and continue to deny Him. David said, those who will not call upon God have judgment coming. Verse 5. There they are in great fear where no fear was. This phrase means that they were in some position, some place where they had no fear. They were comfortable. (laughs) I'm good. I got this. No fear. Thinking they had the upper hand. Thinking they had life figured out. And then suddenly fear comes upon them. There they are in fear, in great fear, where before no fear was. Why? Because God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. God came to the scene, and David uses the metaphor of a siege, right? They were encamped against the people of God, thinking they had the upper hand. We don't need to be afraid, but then God shows up to the scene, and he wins. And it's such a tremendous victory, the, the phrasing is he actually scatters the bones of those he's conquered. Evil seeks to oppose God, but God wins. At the end of verse 5 says, you, the people of God, have put them to shame. They, they thought they were the ones who were unashamed and shaming others who were sided with God. But God reverses the scenario. Now the evildoers have been put to shame. Why? Because God has despised them. God crushes all evil. And that includes sinners who never repent. This is the message of God's Word. This is what God has said. But even in these difficult verses about God's crushing His opposition, there's a reminder that there is a call for repentance. It's right there at the end of verse 4. What have these evildoers chosen? They have chosen not to call upon God for salvation. Nah, We got this. We don't need to be afraid. We're not calling upon God. But suddenly, they are afraid because God has come and He has judged. This is what David sees as he looks to the future. God destroys sinners who do not repent. So, just a brief aside, this may beg a question in our minds. Well, I thought God loved sinners. Doesn't God love sinners? How can He destroy those who reject Him if He loves sinners? 
We have to understand rightly what love is. Love abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. God loves sinners. Yes, He does. He loves sinners in a very, very special way. He expresses His love by sending His Son to die for sinners. His love is expressed through a Savior. God so loved the world that He sent Jesus to be their Savior. And God desires that everyone would come to repentance. All through this period of time, we call it the age of grace or the church age, this is a demonstration of the love of God that His justice, His wrath is waiting to give time for people to come to repentance. At the end of the church age, when the church leaves the earth, God begins to pour out His wrath through the tribulation. And as His wrath is poured out, it's amazing to see, even through the tribulation, as God unfolds His wrath, He's calling sinners to repentance. In fact, there's one point in the tribulation, just before, I think it is the trumpet judgments, God sends an angel over the whole earth to broadcast the message of the gospel. And that angel, it says, preaches the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation, that people would repent and come to God in salvation. You see, there's the love of God. He calls people to trust in His Son. That's the expression of His love. And as we come then to the end of the tribulation, then comes the judgment of all of mankind. And those who have not trusted in Jesus as Savior will stand before God and be sentenced to eternal separation for God. But even this is an act of God's love because love abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. And so for eternity, God pours out His love that those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ and experienced His salvation will cling to Him and what is good forevermore. Those who have rejected God and clung to what is evil will face His opposition forevermore. That, too, is the love of God. Love cannot just affirm evil. Love must oppose evil. This is always the end of those who deny God. If they never call upon God, the end is eternal destruction. And it comes as a surprise, just as mentioned here. Death is usually a surprise in this life, and after death comes the judgment. But furthermore, if the fool is willing to say, oh, it's, there's no God, I'm good, then of course judgment comes as a surprise. Oh, I was wrong. Friend, if you're here today and you've been living as if there is no God, living as you please, without fear, what if you're wrong? What if in moments you were to stand before the God who made you? What would be your plea? Judgment is sure. It could come at any time. In fact, its very nature is that it comes when we least expect it. Do you have a sure answer for God when you stand before His throne? The only answer is Jesus. God judges sinners who do not repent. There's a little town in Iowa called Last Chance, Iowa. I don't know if you knew that. It's located down between Osceola and Sheraton. 
There are a number of stories as to the reason for its name. Nobody knows for sure. Uh, I think at its largest point in its history, it had 115 residents. So, The most repeated story of its naming was that uh, those residents could not come to agreement on a name, and so they proposed a number of names that were already taken by other cities or that did not have the majority of the townspeople's opinion, and so on and so forth. And so finally, the government, the post office said, okay, you have one last chance to name it. And so, well, that'll work. We'll go with last chance. (laughs) And so comes the name of the town. We like to know when our last chance is coming. We like to know, when. okay, how many more tries do I have? When is my last chance? When's my last opportunity? But friends, the nature of God's judgment is that you may not know when your last chance is. It might be today. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, is this kind of prophetic call to repentance where Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while He may be found, while you have opportunity. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Oh, friends, this is the age of God's grace. Would you come to him in repentance? You don't have to hide your sin any longer. You don't have to sweep it under the rug or self-justify or look from affirmation from men. No, acknowledge your sin to God and come to him today because our God is a God who is merciful and he will provide abundant pardon to those who come to him in repentance. And then, friend, if you've done that, call others to repentance. This is our purpose for being here on earth, that we would be ministers of reconciliation. Those that do not have peace with God, oh, have peace with God, trust in Christ. This is our calling. We also can trust in God's judgment of evil. He says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay. When you are mistreated, trust God. As we come to the final section of this psalm, we see that God saves His people as promised. And in verse 6, David looks forward to what he knows about the future, what God has revealed to him at this point. He says, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Zion was their sort of prophetic name for Jerusalem. And it's often related to an expectation of the Messiah. And so when David says the salvation of Israel, I think he's thinking specifically of the promised Messiah, the one that would come and bring salvation for the people of Israel. David knew he was not that king. And so David longs for the day, oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Jerusalem, out of Zion, when God brings back the captivity of his people, when God saves them from the evil, is sort of the sense there. He pulls them up out of their misery. He saves them, brings them back. And in that day, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Both terms there, Jacob and Israel, refer to Israel as a nation. 
often uses the patriarchs to refer to the people of God. This parallelism uh, affirms to us the gladness that will be among the people of God when the Messiah comes and saves God's people. Even if they were suffering now, David longs for that day when God will save his people. And indeed, God will save his people just as he promised. What God hadn't revealed to David was specifically how this was going to unfold. David knew that the salvation would come, but he didn't know the exact timing of it. He didn't know how it would unfold. In fact, this was a surprise to many. That's why the church age is called a mystery in the New Testament. And that when this Messiah came, he would not just provide political salvation. You see, there was quite a problem that many Israelites had not understood. Without the first advent of the Messiah, the the advent where he died for the sins of the people, without that coming, there would be no one worthy for God's kingdom, God's perfect, sinless kingdom. And so, in God's plan, the Messiah would come, would be born of the Virgin Mary, and would live the perfect life, sinless life, would die on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, would pay for the sins of the world, would die, would rise from the grave, so that those who trust in that Messiah are forgiven of their sins and given God's righteousness and made worthy citizens of this perfect kingdom, so that at the Messiah's second coming, God could set up that kingdom and all who trust in Christ, Israel included, would be there in that kingdom. So God would fulfill his promise to David and David looks forward to that day when the Messiah would come and save Israel and God is yet going to do that. He saves his people as promised. And I am so thankful God did it in this specific way because through Jesus, salvation has been provided for me. I have no right to be a part of that perfect kingdom. And yet God invites me in by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're used to broken promises in our world. Uh, Politics would be one uh, arena I could mention. I've mentioned uh, warranties before as well. There are a lot of promises that are made around us that uh, don't always follow through. Let's land on the realm of politics for just a minute, right? Never talk about politics in your sermon, but, well, here we are. Uh, Let's talk about uh, elementary school politics, okay? So when I was in elementary school, uh, we had an election for student body president back when I was in fifth grade. And so, you know, together we had to come up with our campaign speech. You know, what, what principles were we going to run on and what promises were we going to make to voters and so that we could win student body, student body president. And we had to give speeches to our fellow students, you know, with these promises. And I can remember back to these speeches and the outrageous things that were promised that as fifth graders we had really no right or authority to promise. But I can remember one student getting up there and promising, if I'm student body president, there will be less homework. Ah, less homework. I'm all for that. The teacher's going, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> if I'm student body president, there will be longer recesses. You know, and the, the principal's going, no, 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 that's not, uh, not going to happen. One student even promised pets for every student. They could bring their pets into school, right? And, you know, the administrator, okay, enough of this election. You guys are done. You're all out. You don't have the authority or the power to make these kinds of promises. 
In fact, that's sort of always true with mankind, isn't it? We really don't have the authority or power to make any promises. I don't control all things. I don't know what will happen. But there's one who does. There's only one in the entire universe who has the power and authority to make promises. It's God. He rules all things, and what He says, He will do. His promises always come true because He stands apart from all mankind. As the psalm has already proved for us, there is no one like God. He alone is holy. And so when He says something will happen, it will happen. And His salvation is no exception. He's promised that He will save His people, and He will. And we can trust Him. And this is where David looks. He longs for this salvation. When overwhelmed by the evil around him, he looks to the promises of God. What David didn't understand is that the Mosaic covenant, the covenant by which David lived, was was not enough to give him the righteousness he needed to enter God's kingdom. That could only be given to him by faith. I think David understood that at some point in his life. Romans chapter 3 breaks it down for us very clearly. It says, By the law is knowledge of sin. By the first covenant through Moses is the knowledge of sin. And he goes on and he quotes Roman, or excuse me, Psalm 53 that there's no one who's righteous. Uh, human righteousness falls short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 We can't achieve God's kingdom on our own. But the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law. He sent His Son to reveal the righteousness of God. And that those who believe in the Son are given God's righteousness. And as Romans 3 explains to us, they are justified, declared righteous by faith. And this is how we gain entrance to God's kingdom. So friend, as you look at the evil around you, look at the promises of God, remember that He will justify anyone who has faith in Jesus. And so again, I call you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Remember also that His salvation is sure. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ and salvation, then remember, He's given you His righteousness and nothing can stop that. Remember that He's already overcome the world. We should not be surprised by the evil around us. John 16.33 reminds us of this. These things I've spoken to you that in Me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The victory has already been won. We live out our days in this evil world in order to call people to repentance and faith in Christ. That's why we're here. But God's salvation will come when He will redeem us from this captive land and we will go to be with the Lord forevermore where there is no evil. This is what we hope in. And for however many days the Lord has us surrounded by the evils of this world, we continue to preach the truth that there is a Savior and His name is Jesus. If you believe in Him, He will save you today. If you have believed, then He has saved you from your sin and one day will save you from the presence of sin and evil, just as He said. Be glad as you hope in the gospel. Hold fast to your confession that when you stand before the throne, your claim before God is not your own, but only that of what Christ has done for you. 
and long for his return. Maranatha, come Lord. Oh, may the Lord return even today that we would then forever be with the Lord. I hope your heart longs for his return as one who has been redeemed. And as you see the world uh, surrounding you with evil, remember the return of Christ. He's coming and it could be today. Be glad and hope in his salvation because he will set all things right. Be of good cheer. You will have tribulation in this world, but he has overcome the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your perfect plan. As we are overwhelmed by evil, Lord, help us first to remember the evil in our own hearts, that we deserve your just wrath. Help us then to move to the thankfulness of the the truth of the gospel that you sent your Son to save us from our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then help us to be moved to compassion for the world around us, that there are a people in need of salvation, in need of repentance and faith in Christ. And so may we herald this message with, with compassion and grace and kindness leading to repentance. And then, Lord, as we continue to remember your promises, may we look to your coming with hope and longing and expectancy. Come, Lord Jesus, even today. And we pray it in his name. Amen.